The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verses 8 through 22. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Lord, it's so good to be in your house today, and we need your help, because if we're not careful, we'll just go through this text uh, and this Sunday as just another day, another Sunday, another service, another sermon, and today we need to um, hear from you and to be realigned in terms of our relationship with you, our role in the world, and our reason even for existence. So we pray that you'd use um, Exodus 25 to accomplish that end. And then also you'd use it to glorify and magnify your son, Jesus. And we want him uh, to be supremely exalted um, as we uh, look at your word and see what you thought about worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a few questions about worship. First, so why'd you come today? What got you up to come to the congregational worship at College Park Church? Was it because you wanted to learn something what's in the Bible? Maybe because you've got some um, friends that you wanted to connect with? Maybe it's just what you've always done. But why are you here? What, what was the, what's the thing that got you up out of bed to come? Because there's lots of other things you could be doing right now, but you've come to worship service. Well, why? Secondly, think with me about um, maybe a moment in your lifetime where you had what you might consider an unbelievable worship experience. And my question would be this. So what was that like? What were the elements that went into it? What were the dynamics in play that sort of created that experience? 
What was it about that moment where you, you, you sensed the presence of God? Finally, how long do you think you could survive without congregational worship? One week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, a year? What do you think would happen to your soul if, over time, you just gradually drifted and just really neglected what it meant to come together and to worship with a great group of people? So it's Sunday. You're here. That's great. Well done. But why? Today we want to talk about this matter of worship. And I want us to take a step back and just think about what it means to gather together as God's people. I don't want to oversimplify it, but sometimes if you've grown up in church or maybe come into a church on a Sunday morning or maybe it's just something new for you recently, it can become kind of a habitual pattern. We, we come to church, we sing a few songs, we listen to a sermon, we say hi to the people we like, we avoid the people we don't, and we leave. Granted, that's, that's a gross oversimplification, but maybe even a bit pessimistic. But here's what I want you to think about with me this morning, and that is this. So why are you really here? What is it that you're looking for? What do you hope to have happen? Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at the tabernacle under the banner of this new little subset or mini-series called The God Who is Holy. And we're going to look at the matter of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the first worship center that Israel was given. It was designed to mediate God's presence. It was designed to have God dwell among his people. And God gives very, very specific instructions about the construction, the design, the materials, the colors, everything as it relates to the tabernacle. The reason God does that is because worship matters. In fact, friends, worship matters because God matters. Now, Exodus 25, take your Bible, let's go to that text if you're not there already. Exodus 25 to 30 provide incredible detail in the construction of the tabernacle. And just to kind of give you an overview, as I've looked at this book as a whole, it has some interesting things in it, in that this this is one thing. Exodus 25 to 30 contain the very specific instructions about the construction of the tabernacle. And then if you look ahead to chapters 36 to 39, it's basically a repetition of what we have in chapters 25 to 30. It's as though... Exodus says, here's what God says, and then Exodus 36 to 39 is, and the people did exactly as the Lord said. In fact, they're, they're, they're so identical that I'm actually not going to preach both sections because we're just going to do it'd be the exact same sermon. You'd be like, didn't we hear this before? Yeah, you did. And it's, just, it's that the Israelites did exactly what the Lord told them to do. The point of the construction of this tabernacle is this, that worship really matters. In fact, when you dig into Exodus 25 through 30, you're going to see intricate detail. In fact, this text is ripe with very specific details. And some of you, I know you do sometimes what I do, and there's there's like flyover sections in the Bible, right? Let's admit it. You kind of read the genealogies really fast. You know it's inspired, you know it's God's word, but God's word, but come on, let's get on to the next thing. So some of this is kind of flyover material, and the problem is is that the detail that is given here And the unique design that God embeds in this text is really part of the beauty of who and what God is and the fact that God is unbelievably creative in the details that he embeds in everything. 
And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to miss the beauty of what is in this text by neglecting all of the detail. Let me give you an example. I've been thinking about this, the creativity of God in detail. The other day, my son Jeremiah has a, has a parakeet. His name is Max. And he wanted a bird, and so I said yes. And I had no idea that parakeets have a personality. Did you know that? I had no idea. This bird, this bird is hilarious. He, he, he can mimic the sound of a camera. In fact, Jeremiah has put the camera up taking his picture. And so sometimes I think someone's taking a picture and it's just him and he can make that exact sound. He has this bell that's in his cage that he's very possessive of. He's a selfish bird. And he, he, if you touch it, he gets mad. And he, he rings the bell. He puts his little claws on it and rings it and listens to it. And then he makes the exact same sound as the bell. He'll make it over and over. And the other day, I was watching him. He grabbed this little ball that Jeremiah has. And the, he grabbed it and pulled it up. He jumped on it and was swinging back and forth. And, and, I, and I'm, he, he goes up to the window, he chirps and he talks to the other birds. I don't know what he's saying. If he's saying, this is my house, get away. I don't know what he's saying, but he's talking to them. And I, and I found myself looking at this bird just going, God, you make things unbelievably creatively. I found myself sitting on our front porch watching a hummingbird come up to a little feeder and just marveling at the, the red head and the little beak and the, and, the, and the wings that are just flying so fast and boom, he's gone. And all of these intricate details, they, they enhance your view of the beauty of what God has done. I mean, it'd be really sad if you walked around life and you were like this, sun, sky, grass, building, stuff. I mean, that's a horrible way to live, right? Or if you come into church and you're like, song, prayer, sermon, leave. I mean, why would you live like that, right? And instead to behold the beauty of what is happening in the context of life that God has embedded unbelievable detail. So what, what I don't want you to do is read Exodus 25, and you're like, yeah, 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 ark, table, menorah, candle, tent, tabernacle, whatever. I don't want you to, because you will miss the beauty of what this text is all about. This is really important also if you have an artistic bent. Some of you have this, this beautiful way that God has made you, and I think you'll find some resonance with Exodus 25. You know, historically in the church, we kind of swing on a couple different pendulums, and the church used to kind of swing way over on the artistic, aesthetic side. That's why all of the old buildings have a big stained cathedral, uh, uh, um, stained glass, thank you, Dale. So stained glass and cathedral, and what else? No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> And, and, and have high arches so that you can, you can see and feel and experience the expansiveness. And, and then the church kind of swung the other way and there were, there was, there was no stained glass. There was no big expanse. It was just like living in a box and, and buildings aren't really all that important and they just need to be used and that's it. And what you'll find in Exodus 25 is a beautiful balance that, that here is this, this facility, but it's not just a facility. It's a, it's a place that, that, that God dwells in a beautiful thing that God is able to live in and He's interested in colors and textures and fabrics. And so if your heart resonates like that and you, and you, and you see like, like, like you can't help but see blue behind me. You know, creative people with really good gifts do this stuff in order to serve you. Musicians who use their talents and their abilities and their tones in terms of how they sing. And you ought to be grateful that they work really hard, that that sounds good, so you can worship without going, ah, 
that's not so good. You got to be grateful for words that go together and that help us to understand the beauty of all of what and who God is. And so matter makes worship better. And that's what we see even in the design of the tabernacle. So God is sending a message through this facility. Look at chapter 25 and verse 9. God says this, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. So what God is saying is this, that there is something important that's happening in the tabernacle and exactly the way that I tell you to make it, that's the way that you should make it. There's something going on here on earth that is designed to communicate something even more. The writer of Hebrews says this, that they, meaning the tabernacle, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So whatever's happening in the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow of another reality. And then he quotes What's happening in Exodus 25 here, when when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, this tabernacle experience was meant to communicate another bigger reality. Worship corporately matters because worship is what you will do for all of eternity. I was reading recently and an author put it this way and I thought this was really insightful. If you don't love worship now, what makes you think you're going to love it for eternity? If you don't love worship now, then what makes you think that you will love it for eternity? What we experience even now, even here and now, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, but in our own gathering here at our church, it is a, is a slice, a taste, if you will, of what it is to worship together in all of eternity. So, we're going to talk about this matter of worship, and we begin in verse 1. We see that there's a role for us to play. There's a a participation, if you will. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. So here's what happens. It's not just that God drops a worship center down there and says, all of you just come and come to this thing that I've created. God actually gives the people the opportunity, even charges them, that they are to create an environment, a place, a real space that God is going to inhabit and dwell. And he uses their generosity in order to accomplish that. And so what we see from the very beginning is that the way in which the people will worship, it'll begin by their giving and they're contributing in order to facilitate the presence of god notice verse 2 says from every man whose heart moves him meaning that god is interested in the old testament as he is in the new in cheerful giving i mean after all god doesn't need our resources in the first place so he doesn't want some begrudging gift and whether it's your money or whether it's your attitude God doesn't want people who come to worship going, all right, I guess I'll give. All right, I guess I'll come. I guess I'll sit. I guess I'll listen. I guess I'll sing. What is that? God isn't interested in that. He's not interested in your body in the place. He's interested in the heart being ready to encounter him in all of that he is for us. Verses 3 to 6 identify this principle 
And also the materials. Notice verse 3, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastplate. Look at verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So notice here, church, that the people of God facilitated the presence of the God of the universe. And so that's what we do on the Lord's Day. We facilitate the presence of the Lord. Now, I know God dwells individually in the hearts and lives of us uh, as individual people, but there is something unique about the corporate gathering of God's people. Because we gather, because we've prayed, because we've sung, because we're ready to listen, there is something beautiful, something otherworldly about what it means to be together as God's people. That there is this personal preparation, this, this, this sense of I'm involved and I'm ready. Worship matters so much that God instructs his people to give in order so that it would happen. So, with that as the background, there are two key words that are found behind the symbols that we're going to look at today. They are the words transcendence and imminence. I think that worship involves these two realities of God's distance and his nearness. Worship is our response, think of it this way, to the fact that God is not like us, and yet he loves us. Worship is our response to the transcendence and the imminence of God. You know what I mean by those terms? Transcendence means that God is superior, he is supreme, that he is beyond us, that he's greater than us, that he is other. And when you think about God's transcendence, it means that you, you bask in the beauty of his holiness, that you consider his majesty, his greatness, and his power. Imminence, on the other hand, means that God is close, that he's, he's near, that he dwells with us, that he's intimate, that he's personal. It captures the, the meaning that God loves his people, that he is concerned for their needs, that he rescues them, that he has a relationship with them. Now, typically, people gravitate kind of towards one or the other. Most people are either kind of a transcendent person, you, you love things that talk about God's holiness and his otherness, or you love the fact that, that, that God is pictured as coming close and being near, that he's a brother. My bias is towards imminence. That's, now I love, or transcendence, excuse me. I, I love the idea that God is close, but my default is I love thinking and dreaming and reading about the otherness of God. In fact, if you were to enter into my study when I'm writing a sermon, often you will find really spooky music. I love confession. We won't ever have this music on Sunday morning, but we love, I love, chant music. Yes. So if you come into my office, you would hear, and be like, what is going on in there, man? You know, that's, that's my Latin right there. So how's that? So 
why I love that music. I love because it, it comes from a particular uh, time period. And granted, they had their abuses and their errors and all of that. But there's something mysterious, something otherworldly. And when I'm engaging with God's word and I'm thinking about what it is that that He wants to say through His word to His to, to His people, I can't help but my heart just go, God, I want the supremacy and the exaltation of Your name to be so clear. I want people coming in who've experienced You horizontally all throughout their day with relationships all throughout the week. I want them coming in and experiencing something that is absolutely otherworldly to the proclamation of your word. That, that's, that's where my default is. And then the imminence is also extremely important. The imminence is that God is a close friend, that he walks with us, he talks with us. And what's beautiful is that the tabernacle reflects both the transcendence and the imminence of God. Let me show you this. Interestingly enough, the description of the tabernacle doesn't go from whole to part. It begins with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the most significant and the most important aspect of the tabernacle. So if I was going to describe the tabernacle to you, I probably would have started with the whole. Like, here's the outer realm and then kind of move from outside in. But the Bible starts with the Ark of the Covenant, and the reason, very simply, is because of all things in the tabernacle, the Ark was the absolute most important. I don't know what your image of the Ark is. It probably looks something like this, maybe a little different than your Indiana Jones understanding of it, but it's close, all right? So the Ark was not all that large. It was three feet, nine inches by two feet, four inches wide and tall. It probably is better described, not like an ark, but as a chest. And the ark was supposed to be portable. And I want to kind of give you a, a better image. And so I asked uh, one of our brothers to be able to put this together for me so you could just kind of see how relatively small this is. And also our new priests here. So uh, <laughs> thank you, brothers. So what's remarkable is that this, this Ark of the Covenant isn't all that large, and yet this was the center of gravity for Israel and their worship. Everything about their identity rested in, in what this Ark rep- represented. And it was this Ark that became the symbolic presence of God among His people, and it isn't really even that big. This Ark of the Covenant has enormous spiritual and, and symbolic significances. On top of the Ark was a, a cover. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And on top of that cover were two cherubim. They, they spread their wings towards one another. And cherubim in the ancient Near East were known as angelic guardians. And in the Bible, they become those who inhabit the glory of God. They, they, they are the guardians, if you will, of God and His glory. Think, for instance, in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are expelled out of the garden, God places a cherubim as, as the guardian so they can't come back in. The cherubim are creatures whose presence is synonymous with the holy presence of God. And so often what you'll see in the Bible is that when it talks about in the presence of the cherubim or between the cherubim, that term becomes a term for God himself and where he dwells. The symbol even gets embedded into the fabrics of the tabernacle. The, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies where the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the holy place where the other things in the tabernacle were were to be embroidered with, with pictures of, of, of cherubim. In fact, Psalm 99, 1 
says this, let the, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth quake. So the idea is that God is enthroned above the cherubim. So the cherubim become a very important feature. They become this, this picture of God and his presence. But the ark also has something to say about atonement. Look at verse 17. He says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now, my Bible has a little footnote on it. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible, it says what? Or cover. If you have an NIV, it says atonement cover. So mercy seat, cover, atonement cover. What's going on here? Well, Old Testament scholars tell us that that word cover can not only be a noun, but also a verb. In its intensified form, the word for covering can not only mean a physical cover, but the act of covering. And Exodus 25 tells us that inside the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony. Look at verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. So the idea is that inside the ark of the covenant is the law of God. This represents the presence of God. And on top of the law of God is a cover, and that cover has a very significant spiritual metaphor connected with it. It was to be made of absolute pure gold, and one day a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And so on top of the law of God is this covering that atones for the people's sins. And one day a year that priest comes in and sprinkles blood. And it's in this union of God's law and blood and atonement that God comes and dwells with his people. So what we see in the Old Testament pictured in the tabernacle is this central message of the entire Bible, which is that of atonement. The ark, in effect, was the center of gravity for the people of Israel. It was the central reality of the tabernacle because atonement is the central reality of the Bible. Everything about the ark was meant to communicate the otherness of God. Even the sprinkling of blood was meant to communicate God is not like you. You can't, not any, only the high priest can come in here and only once a year does he come into this presence that God is distant. God is holy. God is righteous. And a right understanding of worship begins with understanding and considering and responding to what it means that God is not like us. Oh, friends, he loves us. But he is not like us. So let me give you some implications of that when it comes to how you approach the Lord's Day. In the first place, preparation. As you come to Sunday, when you come, do you come with an anticipation, I am coming to God's house to meet with God, or do you come with a mentality of, I wonder what I'm going to get today? As you wake up on Sunday morning, as you prepare to get ready to be able to meet with God's people in the presence of a holy God, you ought to anticipate this gathering. You ought to make this time a priority such that you are well rested, that your texting mechanisms are off, right? You, you ought to come here with a singular focus, anticipating being able to meet with God's people. If you're a husband or a father, one of the great ways that you can serve your family is to be sure that the environment in your home on Sunday morning is ripe and ready for God-centeredness. 
I grew up in a home like that. I don't know what it was, but I woke up every Sunday morning, especially during the summer times. All the windows were open. There was a breeze blowing through the house. My dad had praise music going on. I remember coming down and going, man, it's freezing in this house. And what's that crazy music going on? And my dad was like, it's Sunday. It's Sunday. And I hope that as mom or a dad, you could view this Lord's Day not as something, well, let's go and let's get home so we can get a nap. But rather you could say, you know what? This is an important moment in our life. We're going to meet with God's people. When your children ask that annoying question, are you going to church today? First of all, you ought to say, are you alive? Of course we're going to church. It's, this is why we are here. This is why we exist. We go to meet with God's people. It ought not to be one of many things. It ought to be the main thing because really we need a recalibration of what's really important because if you're not careful, you go weeks and weeks without gathering with God's people The fact of the matter is your heart will attach to all sorts of things that are not the kind of things that God and his glory are embedded in. Then participation. As the worship service takes place, you ought to realize and be looking for ways to be engaged. Thinking, God, you're going to reveal yourself to me through congregational singing and scripture reading and prayer. You ought to be engaged because you're meeting with God, realizing that I am here and God is here and God's people are here and that there's something significant about this. It means that when you gather, it's more than just you coming for you. It's that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Sometimes I run into people who say, well, I can just worship at home by myself. And my answer would be, no, you can't. I'm sorry, you need somebody else picking the songs, right? (laughs) You, you need somebody else speaking the truth of God's word to you. You can't just all be about you. You need God's beautiful body together. Sure, the church is a mess. It's always been a mess. It's why you're here and welcome. We're glad you're here. You help it be a beautiful mess. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need one another, and there's something unique when the body of Christ gathers. And brothers and sisters, we need to take this moment on this day of the week seriously. We are meeting with our Creator. Unction is an old word. There are moments when you know God is speaking. You ever had that? You're in the middle of a service, a sermon, and it's like God is speaking so directly to you. The reason I've given my heart and life to this is because there is nothing greater that I've ever seen in all of my lifetime than when God by His Spirit comes and fills the congregation individually and corporately. When God mediates His presence through His Word by His Spirit for the glorification of Christ, there is nothing better than that. And that is what we ought to pray for, long for, and look for. To say, God, I don't want dead church. God doesn't want dead church. The only one who wants dead church is the enemy. We ought to say, God, we want you to come. We want you to speak. We want your church to be alive and aflame. And finally, reflection. If you're going to clap, we've got to clap. Let's do it. Reflection. Look, God has you here for a reason. So what is that reason? We're here, Exodus 25, it's June 23rd. Why? Why are you here? What, what is God trying to say? You ought to take time to reflect on that, to think, so what is it that God said today? As opposed to, what do you think of that song? We need to get a bird. Or... <laughs> or, he's not wearing a tie today. Or, you know... You ought to be asking yourself, so what is it that God's saying? Because after all, the purpose of our gathering is to be able to meet with a living God. 
And of course you can do that individually. Of course you can do that personally. But there is something really powerful about experiencing this in the corporate sense. So while this this church isn't a tabernacle, it's certainly not a temple, there is still something sacred, something otherworldly. I would argue something transcendent that happens when the people of God gather. And you know, oh my word, God is here. He's transcendent. Here's the second thing. We have the table and the lampstand. So we have the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 22 says, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Next, we have this imminent aspect. We have a table. Verse 23 You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And so outside of the Holy of Holies, in the holy place was this table, and on this table was bread. This bread pictured the life of Israel. Take your Bible, go over to Leviticus 24. Let me show you this. In order to get some additional color as to what was happening here, you need to go to another uh, book in the Bible. And in Leviticus 24, 5, you see very specific instructions. Now think of this. You have a worship center with an Ark of the Covenant that's in the Holy of Holies, and then just outside of that. And that Ark is designed to communicate the transcendence of God. And then right outside of that, in the holy place, you have a table, a table with bread, Look at verse 5. You shall take fine flour. This is Leviticus 24, 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, and on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it from before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the idea is there were two stacks of bread, uh, six on each side, obviously picturing the, the people of Israel. And in the midst of this worship center, you have a table. What's a table used for? A table is used for fellowship. People of Israel aren't bringing God food. Instead, it's a picture of God's intimacy and the personal relationship that he has with him. The, the table symbolized God and his provision for his people. It was designed to say this. God is here, and he is here as one who provides sustenance. He sustains us. That's what you experience, I hope, sometimes in corporate worship, that you not only have been able to bask in the beauty of all of what God is, but something within your soul gets deeply filled, and you're able to say, you know what, I can live another six days. In the midst of all that I'm afraid of, in the midst of the sin that I'm, I'm trying to fight, I can live, that I really believe that He is my daily portion. It also isn't hard to see the parallels to what we often call the Lord's table, this, this table that Jesus institutes in taking the Passover meal. And in Luke 22, Jesus says, This is my body given for you. 
So we have a table in worship, and that table communicates fellowship and provision. So here is the unbelievable reality that a transcendent, holy, righteous, you can't go in this room, you don't dare get near him, he comes and he wants fellowship with sinful human beings. It is the amazing um, paradox of worship that God is both transcendent and yet also intimate. He's not like us, but yet he cares for us. So we have a table. We also have a lampstand. Go back to Exodus 25. Look at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. And this this lampstand, often you may know of it as a menorah, was designed to be filled with oil and then to be lit. In fact, we learn from Leviticus 24 that Aaron and the priests were to prepare the lampstand and they were to light it from evening to morning. In other words, they were to go in and light it as it was getting dark. Now, we don't know all the reasons why the lampstand was in there, and sometimes people make way too much of, of things in the, um, in the tabernacle, but what it seems is that this lampstand was designed to illuminate the tabernacle at night. So that while Israel was camped all the way around the tabernacle, there would be this sense that even at night, the tabernacle would be the most lit facility in their entire camp, communicating that God's house, God dwelling, God in his people, doesn't go away at night. Can you imagine what it was to be in a tent around the encampment of Israel and and look to the middle of the encampment and see this glowing facility, realizing that it's picturing God's presence? I mean, light and fire are, are typical, the kind of um, uh, symbols for God and His presence. Think, for instance, of the, of the burning bush. And it makes sense that the, the tabernacle would include this, store, this sort of symbolism. So you have, a, a, you have a, a tabernacle that's lit up. You have a tabernacle that has a table in it. When you put these two things together, they both highlight the nearness, the presence, the close proximity of God to His people. They highlight the fact that God is among us. When you understand this, it makes texts like John 1 take on a whole new light. I mean, just just listen to what John says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we've already gone from transcendent to imminent to imminent. He says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So imminent, transcendent, and then back to imminent, and then transcendent again. We have seen His glory. It's a beautiful thing to consider that God is near, that He's personal, He's loving, He's kind. Worship is the stunning consideration of these two realities, that God is both transcendent and imminent, that He is unbelievable and yet He is personal, that He is other and yet He is near. And the ultimate expression of this, of course, is the person of Jesus. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. That here is the God-man. That He is both man and God. That the tabernacle in all of its elements pointed ultimately to the new heaven and the new earth. But to the inauguration of Christ as He comes in the flesh as the God-man. Hebrews chapter 9 gives us a great summary 
of these truths. Here's what it says. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For what, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for a man once to die and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You know what that means? What that means is that every time the body of Christ gathers and reflects on the beautiful reality of what Christ has done, when they ponder the beauty of both the transcendence and the imminence of God that have been reconciled through the finished work of Christ, within their souls is a passion to say, we long for you, Jesus, to come again. We want for you to come and redeem us from a sin-cursed world. And the copies of the tabernacle, the presence of God mediated through this locational dwelling of God find, find its ultimate expression in Jesus and then again expressed in the new heavens and the new earth that he has truly been God among us. So the center of spiritual gravity for Israel was the Ark of the Covenant, but the center of the spiritual gravity and the New Testament is Jesus. So when we come to worship, we're, we're, we're meeting with Him. Our singing, our greeting, our giving, our listening, our responding to the Word, our in effect interactions with Him. And the reason why He has filled us with the Spirit is so that we can have an unusual fellowship with one another. That God brings us together from all walks of life, from different backgrounds and different races and different genders, different struggles. And yet there's this singular unifying reality that we confess Christ and Him crucified. He is both transcendent and imminent. He is our King, our God, our Savior. So the question is this. So why did you come to worship today? What did you get out of the sermon? You know, those aren't bad questions, but they are not, they are not, they are not the sum total of worship. True worship basks in the beauty and the grace-filled trauma of a God who is not like us, but who has yet come to us. True worship is meeting with God so that your heart is so enraptured with all of what He is for you and the fact that He is so other and the fact that He is so near that then you would be propelled forth into loving, risk-taking obedience into a world that would look at your life and go, what is different about you? And the difference is that you are somebody who has met with your God. Oh yeah, there were other people there that was part of the experience. Yeah, there was a book that you studied. There were songs written by people. There was music that God had created in His general revelation sense. But the fact of the matter is that there was an encounter with a living God. And that's what the Lord's Day is about. That's what worship is about. And I would argue that's what your heart really longs for. That at the end of the day, the reason why you should gather with God's people is because you want to meet with a God who's not like you, but yet still loves you. Lord Jesus, fill us with all of your fullness today. Satisfy the hearts of those who are weary and heavy laden. 
Forgive us of our sins, those things that break our fellowship with You. And thank You that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. Lord, help us today to be true worshipers. Help us as a specific congregation here at College Park Church to get it when it comes to what it means to be in Your presence. Somewhere between formalism and overly approaching worship as some casual event, as a spot that we want to be, that God, we could just take serious as all get out, that You're a holy God and yet also marvel that You love us and You care for us. And so, Lord, send us out now as Your people who are going to be apart for another week. And until we gather again, remind us of the beauty of what it means that You are a God who can be loved and pursued and known, and that You are longing to meet with Your people. Lord, give us affections for You that are huge and propel us into obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some brothers and sisters up here afterwards who would love to pray with you if there's something going on in your soul today. Hear Psalm 27 as you leave. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Mm. I love you, College Park. God bless you.